Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. Today, we're actually going to wrap up a series that we've been doing for eight weeks now, and it's called The Resilient Church. Um, what's the point of having a resilient church? It's not just longevity. If you're new, let me just say this. Our church is 173 years old. We became a church about four months before California became a state. I mean, that gives you kind of some uh, a, a leverage point, a, a viewpoint. Um, but longevity isn't the point. Let me give you an example. Um, let's say... I told you we're going to celebrate a 99-year-old person's birthday today. You'd be like, wow, that's amazing. But what if I told you, like, well, in his 20s, he left his wife and kids. In his 30s, he became a drug dealer. In his 40s, he started kicking dogs. And for his whole life, he illegally parked in those handicapped spots. I mean, you'd be like, I don't care if he's 99 years old. He's a horrible human being, right? Longevity is not the point of the resilient church. We want to be the kind of resilient church that is healthy and thriving. And so we've been in this series, Resilient Church, that takes a look at Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And in there, you get seven letters to seven churches. And Jesus gives the writer John this direct message that says, I want you to write seven letters to these seven different churches. And then those letters would be taken around by a circuit preacher, pastor, servant, and they, each letter would be read in each of the churches. And so we're on our last, our last letter to the last church, the church of Laodicea. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, grab it and open it up to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And we're going to read through this letter and see what God has us learn. So here, here were the churches. I, every church we tried to give a title to. The first one was this. It was the loveless church. Jesus said, you've forsaken your first love. And then there was the suffering church, the compromising church, because they compromised in truth and what they were teaching. The permissive church, they just kind of let their, their, their Christians do whatever. The sleepy church, then last week was the discouraged church. And in, in most of these letters, if you can follow along, you know, Jesus would give them a commendation like, hey, double thumbs up, you're doing these things well. And then he'd give them a correction. Like, hey, by the way, this is what you're not doing well. Let's correct that. Well, in our church today, uh, there's no commendation. (laughs) It's just correction. So if if it feels a little um, non-encouraging at times, like, wow, just kind of putting our finger on the sore spots of the church, this is the message from Jesus today. And I I think as we're doing this series, we, we need to ask ourselves the question, hey, what's great about our church? What would Jesus give us a commendation for? And then what would Jesus give us a correction for? Now, before you're sitting in your seat and you're thinking, oh yeah, what would we give a commendation and correction of the church staff for? That is, the staff is not the church. Every believer in the church is the church. And so maybe you might consider this as we're looking at this last church. Would Jesus give you a commendation or maybe today because it's mostly correction, would he give you a correction in your life today? So, This church in Laodicea, we're going to call it this. We're going to call it the self-reliant church. And here's where it starts. Chapter 3, verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. 
These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Every letter starts with Jesus introducing himself. And every way he introduces himself, he does so because it pertains to what he's about to correct the church for. So he says, I'm writing this. It's the words of the amen. The word means verily or truly, truly. The faithful and true witness and the ruler of God's creation. Why did he introduce himself? We're going to find out that the church in Laodicea, they actually lacked truth. They were not the faithful witness and they didn't want Jesus to be the ruler of their church. All of these describe the self-reliant church. So just quick thing. What does self-reliant mean? Definition. Confident of your own abilities. Able to do things for yourself. Not needing help from others. Um, I just mentioned to you, like, maybe God's going to kind of put a finger on your life about maybe how you're self-reliant. I think God gives us opportunities in life that he reminds us that we need him. If you've ever had an education failure, if you've ever had a relationship failure, if you've ever had a job failure, if you've ever had a medical failure, and if you've never had any of those, and then you got married, you're like, oh, wow, I, I thought I had this thing down. And if you're like, no, 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 marriage is pretty easy. Well, have a kid. You want to learn self, you want to be self-reliant? Be like, no, 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 God, I don't want to be self-reliant. I actually want to be, I want to rely on you, God. Just have a kid. And you're like, we had a kid. It was great. Have another. Because there's just moments in our lives that I watch people go through moments of like, yeah, I can do this. I got my life together. Then all of a sudden, a relationship breaks. Or they get married and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing, actually. They spent a year getting ready to, for the wedding and didn't, spend a year getting ready to actually be married. And then they have a kid and they're like, where's the training manual? There's moments in our lives where we can be reminded about how much we need God. But listen, there can also be moments like today where we open the word of God and he says, listen, you have no idea how much you need me, but if you will depend on me daily, I'll be with you and I will help you all the way through. So two great teachers in life, pain or wisdom. And I'm hoping that as we read this text today, that wisdom will abound. Because here's the self-reliant church in Laodicea. The first is this. It appears successful, rich, and comfortable. How do we know this? Uh, they excavated the city. The ancient place where the city of Laodicea was, it was filled with this. It was a, it was a business hub. It was raised up on this plateau where two trade routes came through, and they had plenty of wealth. When you excavated their buildings, there were vast theaters, an intricate waterworks system, beautiful fountains, temples, paved streets, and gorgeous homes. They were rich. They were so rich that when in 60 AD, when they had a, an earthquake, 60 AD, that's probably 36 years before this letter was written, their city was decimated. The Roman government said, we'll help you rebuild the city. They said, no, thanks. We don't, we're going to rebuild it ourselves. We have so much money. Now listen, how rich do you have to be to turn down free money? This church and this city were rich. The problem was this, that self-reliant, we're going to do it ourselves attitude of the city bled over to the attitude of the church. And they started thinking, why do we need Jesus? They probably wouldn't ever verbalize it like that. But they started treating Jesus as if like, why do we need him? Because everything we need is provided by our wealth. So here's the question. I wrote it down in your notes there. How can Christians 
in an affluent, comfortable situation, avoids spiritual stagnation and self-reliant pride by continuing to grow and develop into the likeness of Christ. I I don't know if you uh, realize this. I'm sure you do. Whether you feel rich or you feel poor, we live in an affluent society where money abounds. I'm going to be super clear about this. Money is not the problem. It's a heart condition. There are people who love Jesus who are, uh, you shouldn't say filthy rich in that context, right? Um, who are affluent. And there, there are people who um, money does get in the way of their following Jesus. So I want to talk about the heart of this. By the way, um, how rich are we? If you own a car, you're actually in the top 6% of the world in wealth. Uh, if you own a home, you're in the top 3% of the world. And if you own a home or a car in the Silicon Valley, you are top 1% in the world. All right? Our challenge is this. We know where our next meal is coming from, right? It's coming from wherever you choose to go out to eat after church. <laughs> because well, all of us probably have money enough in our wallets to go eat wherever we want. Our affluence, we have it. So the question is this. Are we a self-reliant church or are we a Christ-reliant church? The second thing is this, the self-reliant church, they're not useful to God. Now, let me show you where I get this from because this has been mistaught an awful lot. Here's where it says in verse 15, I know your deeds. Jesus is talking to the church. I know your deeds. I've watched you. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Literally means Jesus is about to vomit this church. It makes, that church makes him sick to his stomach. Now to understand what this actually means, you got to understand the geography. Let me show you a couple pictures here. Um, Right here, look at this map. So Laodicea is the church over here, the pinpoint on the right. Across the valley, nine miles away is Hierapolis. You see how it's white right there? It looks like a snow-capped mountain. It's not. I'll get to that in just a minute. Way up top there, there's a little pinpoint. You can see it's Colossae right at the top there. If you can't read that, that's okay. It it says Colossae. That's kind of the triangle of cities. You have to understand that geography in order to understand what Jesus is saying here. So as the people in uh, Laodicea look across the valley at Hierapolis, they see these white mountains. It's not snow. It's calcium. Because in Hierapolis, they have this natural spa. The water comes out of the ground at 95 degrees, and these healing pools of hot water soothe weary bodies. That's the hot water illustration. Now, if you went to, uh, oh, by the way, people still flock there today. I mean, you, you can go there, take pictures of this. If you go to the very next picture, Dave, go to the next one. Those are the mountains right above the city of Colossae. Now, during the year, those mountains are so tall that almost year-round, they can hold snow, which means this. Cold, clear water trickles through the city of Colossae. So the neighbors that they can see from Laodicea to one area, like, oh, there's hot, healing water here, and there's cold, refreshing water from the city. But you know what? You are Laodicea. You're just lukewarm water. And they actually understood the illustration because of this. The only thing that they couldn't buy money-wise was to have a spring in their town. Why? Because it's natural. You can't buy it. There was no water source in Laodicea. So you know what they had to do? 
There was a spring, the closest one was six miles away. They had to build an aqueduct and a piping system to get water in their, their city. You know what it's like after water travels through a pipe for six miles? What is it? It's lukewarm. You ever drink lukewarm water? I, there's always someone in the crowd that's like, oh, I love it, it's the best. The point is that the hot spa water is good for soothing weary bodies. And the cold water is refreshing to your body on, on a hot day. And lukewarm water, good for nothing. He's like, blah, spit you out of my mouth. Now, this has been taught by pastors occasionally over the years to say, Jesus is going to reject you. I don't think that's what he's saying. Because did, when it, in this text, it says, I wish you were either hot or cold. Does Jesus really say, I really wish some people were spiritually cold? No, no, he's not saying that. He's saying, I wish you were useful on one end or the other, but because you're not useful to me, you're making me sick to my stomach. A church that's useless? So in this text, I think what it means to be useless is a church that's indifferent to Jesus because they're just self-reliant. Um, Elie Wiesel is a survivor of Auschwitz. He went on to become a Nobel Peace Prize recipient. He gives a description, I think, of what lukewarm means. He writes this, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of success is not failure, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. The church was just becoming indifferent towards Jesus. Why? They don't need him. Or at least they don't think they need him. Because almost everything that they think they want or need can be purchased by money. So here it is. The self-reliant church, number one, appears successful, rich, and comfortable. Number two is not useful to God. Number three, treats God as non-essential. Look at verse 17. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Could you imagine? Let's have a prayer time. And uh, since, you know, since we don't need anything, we don't have to actually ask God for anything because God, we don't really need you. I guarantee you, no one said that to Jesus. Jesus, we just don't need you. But they started treating him like that. Um, I think it's ironic that on our money, it states what? In God we trust. But the irony of it is, the more we have of it, the harder it is to trust in God because everything we need, almost everything we need, we purchase. The sad truth is this. It is possible to be wealthy and successful and yet be spiritually good for nothing. And that should ache our hearts in this valley. The fourth thing is the self-reliant church covers their shame and brokenness with success and wealth. And here's what I mean. Uh, Jesus starts ratcheting up the intensity of this. And the confrontation of this. Verse 17, halfway through, he says, But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Five descriptors of this church. And it's not very encouraging. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Let me explain these five words to you. The first is this. Uh, most people who are rich, they think they're happy. He's like, no, no, no. You're actually miserable. You're not a happy church. You're a wretched church. That means you are just you're not happy with yourself. You're not happy with life. And then he says this, you're pitiful, which means you're to be pitied by people, which the opposite of that is you'd be envied by them. Now, listen to this. 
The seven letters would be taken to each of the churches and all seven letters would be read to each of the churches. Can you imagine the church in Smyrna who was the smallest church that we called the suffering church? They weren't wealthy. They were suffering. They were small. Can you imagine them reading this or having this letter read to them? Hey, that church in Laodicea, they're actually to be pitied by you. And often the larger churches are envied by Christians who are in a struggling situation. And can you imagine being the church in Laodicea where you're, you're proud and you all show up in your nice clothes and your nice church building and having this letter read to you. And it says, literally, you're actually to be pitied by all the other Christians. Uh, you know, you look like the richest. Well, you are the richest and yet you're not living a truly rich life. And no one actually should envy you. They should actually look on your church with pity. And then he gives these... Um, these three words, Jesus calls them poor, blind, and naked. Let me explain this. In Laodicea, they would actually mint their own coins. I mean, they were the bank of the valley. And he's like, you think you're rich, but you're actually poor because there's a difference in having a rich lifestyle and living a truly rich life. And then he calls them this, you're blind too. Now, this would be significant to the people in town because of this. They actually had the number one medical school in all of what's now known as Turkey. They actually had this Phrygian powder that you could put as a salve in your eyes. And they, they had the number one like eye clinic, eye school, medical school. And they were known for this salve that they put in their eyes that would bring healing to people. And Jesus is like, listen, you got the number one eye school in the, the whole region, but you're actually a blind church. And then he calls them naked. The, um, what is his name? Historian, oh, Strabo. He, he writes this. He says, quote, the country around Laodicea produces sheep, remarkable not only for their softness of wool, but also for their raven black color, and they get splendid revenue from it. So they raise these black sheep. They were the Patagonia, the North Face of their day. Because they would take this black wool, they would soak it in this waxy dye, waterproof, warm wool for everybody. And it made them rich. So can you imagine the church? They're all sitting there and this letter is about to be read to them and they have all their black Patagonia sweaters on that none of the other cities and churches get to have. And he's like, yeah, you think you're finally clothed, but you are all naked. Um, Jesus' words are fairly confrontational in this. Uh, it reminds me of this report. A guy named Paul Vitz, uh, he wrote this report comparing the mathematical abilities of Korean kids to American kids in 1989. Let me just quote this to you. A 1989 study of mathematical skills compared students of eight different countries. American students ranked lowest in mathematical competence. And the Korean students ranked Highest, yes. But the researchers also asked students to rate how good they were at mathematics. It's, it's the question of how, how, how do you see yourself compared to others? And the American students ranked highest in their self-delusion. While the Koreans ranked lowest. Mathematical self-esteem had an inverse relation to mathematical accomplishments. They thought they were the best when they were the worst. 
And this is what's happening in the church. You think you're rich. You're putting pride on your medical accomplishments. You're putting pride on your, uh, the success of that wonderful wool that you sell to other people. But let me tell you the truth of your church. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked, and you don't even get it. Listen, listen, I'm not trying to like be negative today at all. I'm just trying to teach you the text and the richness behind this. There's so many great images in this text. But I just wonder if today God might open our eyes to something where you and I are being self-reliant and treating Jesus like we don't need him. And so here's why I say it this way. The self-reliant church covers their shame and brokenness with success and wealth. I think the church is one of the hardest places for people to come in and be truly transparent with each other. Like a bunch of religious people, right? No one has it as bad as I do. No one, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. It's the biggest lie that people believe. One of the things about our church that I really like is it's, um, we're trying to make it as authentic as possible. We will celebrate successes and we will rally around brokenness. We'll rally around your brokenness whatever it is, but we can't rally around that that we don't know about. I've been here more than 20 years. It was interesting as I was standing in the back, I was just looking at people I know. There's medical brokenness around the room. There's financial brokenness. There's marriage brokenness. There's parental brokenness. There's all kinds of brokenness in this room. And if God would give us the kind of strength and guts to be transparent with each other, it's in those moments that actually God would help us grow. The self-reliant church, I think, is an image church that needs to become a Christ-reliant church. So I'm going to switch gears now. We talked about being self-reliant, but in the middle of this message, Jesus says, I have a command for you. Here's what I want you to do. And he starts talking about what a Christ-reliant church was. And let me give this to you, a couple points here. Number one, I think the Christ-reliant church must rediscover the truly rich life found in generous living, not comfort. This is where I get this from. By the way, my words on these points, these are not like divinely inspired. I'm just trying to reword the text so it can grab our hearts and we can remember it a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says, I counsel you, Jesus speaking here, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And you're like, okay, what's the gold? It's Jesus himself. It's the kingdom of God. It's relationship with God. It's forgiveness. It's faith. And I think it's all wrapped up in this one concept, this one word called the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus brings us. He says, if you have that, you're rich. If you don't have that, you're broke as a joke. Jesus tells this parable. Let me just read this to you. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man finds it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Jesus tells multiple parables about this. Like when you find the kingdom of God, when you find the gospel, when you find the good news of God and relationship with him, it's like, it's worth everything. He calls it a treasure. He tells the story about how people will sell everything they have so they can find this treasure. It's an illustration that he's making to say, when you discover the gift that Jesus offers you of forgiveness and relationship with God, it's the most worthy thing in the world, worth pursuing. And then later on, 
The Apostle Paul, he would write this message, this couple sentences to Christians who were affluent. And I think it's the clearest text in all of the Bible that rich people need to hear. Because it starts this way. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, command those who are rich in this present world. I mean, how plain does that get? Write this to rich people. And if we live in the Silicon Valley, we're actually rich people. If you don't think so, talk to any of the people who went to Guatemala in the last couple of weeks, okay? <laughs> we are the affluent. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything, get this phrase, for our enjoyment. Because when God provides it, there's joy in it. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Want to put a placard in your home? Put that in a placard, man. It's such a great text. You want the life that it's truly going to be joyful, truly going to be life? Figure out how to be generous towards God and generous towards people. The second thing is this. The Christ-reliant church is clothed in God's mercy and grace instead of hiding behind the appearance of a perfect life. Here's what he says. After he says, buy this gold for me. By the way, that whole kingdom of God it's almost ironic that he says, I want you to purchase this from me. I want you to buy it from me. Why? Because he's already bought it. Jesus paid for that life on the cross. So actually all we can do is receive it. So after this gold, he then says this, um, I want you to buy from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. These white clothes, they always symbolize, if you write down these two words, ready? Because you're going to be like, I don't know what that is. Imputed righteousness. Write that down. White clothes symbolize the imputed righteousness of the Savior and the, the righteous acts of the saints. What that means is this, that whole forgiveness, that innocence, that clean heart that we all want, it's called imputed righteousness. Self-righteousness means you would have earned it. Imputed means this, Christ earned it on the cross, offers you forgiveness, and it can be imputed on you. He was innocent, died for us so that we could be viewed by God as innocent. He's like, trade those filthy rags you wear. He's not talking about your clothes. He's talking about our lives. Trade your sin for this white garment so you can be innocent before God. Um, I think it's interesting that the New Testament, it's filled with this phrase, clothe yourselves with. Like daily, put it on. Hopefully you're not wearing the same clothes you were yesterday or the day before that. If you've been wearing the same clothes all week, I'm sorry. Come see me, I have extra. If you're wearing the same clothes that you've worn all year, please come see me. <laughs> every day we put new clothes on, don't we? And then we wash them and then we put new clothes on every day. It's the same concept. When the New Testament says, I want you to clothe yourselves with this. Let me just read some of these to you. Romans 13, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, put him on. And do not think how to gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. Every day you wake up and you're like, I can either put on Jesus or I can put on my desires. He's like, put on Jesus every single day. What does that mean? Galatians 3, for all of you who are baptized in Christ, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. You've put him on. But there's this daily sense that says, Jesus, I need you every day. 
And then when, when you say yes to Jesus, it's about saying yes to his character every day. Colossians 3, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. You're taking the attitude. You're trying to become like Jesus. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Just a quick question, like what are we clothing ourselves with? Are we trying to appear better than we are? Or are we willing to say, God, there's some brokenness in my life. Instead of covering it up, I want to start putting on kindness and humility and putting on the forgiveness of Christ. The Christ-reliant church also, number three, constantly looks for God's way of seeing the Christian life. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me, solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Do you see how each of the things he's telling them to do, it comes from, it comes from uh, what they were broken about? You're poor, blind, and naked, so buy from me gold so you're not poor, but you're spiritually rich. I, I know you're, you're blind, and so I, I want you to um, put this salve on your eyes. What does that mean? It means this. Do we actually allow God to give us perspective on the world? Is our truth defined by God's word, or is our truth defined by us? Listen, listen. We live in a culture where we think we get to pick everything about us. Our identity, our gender, we, we get to pick whatever we want. The truth is, you were born into a family you didn't get to pick. You were born with weaknesses that you didn't get to pick. You were born with strengths that you didn't get to pick. God brought people into your life that you didn't get to pick. He's created you beautifully. And yet we live in a world where we fool ourselves and pretend like we get to pick and choose who we are. We get to pick and choose who we follow. And his invitation is this. Would you allow me, my truth, to be your truth? I think this Christ-reliant church is, is saying, Jesus, tell us how to see this. Give us your wisdom. We don't want to just say, this is my wisdom. Our reliance on Christ, though, don't miss this, is revealed by our habits. He's like, yeah, I rely on Jesus every day. Listen, it will be revealed by your habits, not by your words. Do you rely on him daily in his word? Meaning, do you open this up and read it? God, tell me what's true. Do you rely on him in prayer? Do you rely on him by the habit of obeying him, even if it's not cool? Do you rely on him in generosity? We cannot claim reliance on Jesus if our habits don't reveal that. I got to keep cranking through here. Number four, um, the Christ-reliant church humbly repents when rebuked by God. Here's what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. It's a weird word, rebuke. It tastes bad, doesn't it? Like, I don't want God to rebuke me. I, I, there's different ways he rebuked this church. Let me give you the first one, the fear approach. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The fear approach. Oh God, no, no, don't, don't, don't walk away from me. God, don't, don't leave me on my own. If you've had parents who have rebuked you ever, they might have taken the fear approach. If you do that, boy, I'm gonna. It's the fear approach. There's an appropriate place for that. There's the confrontation approach. Jesus chooses these shocking words. You're poor, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Like, whoa, we're what? We're naked in church. That should shock them. There's the teaching approach. 
where if you just tell somebody the truth, like, I, I just want to tell this to you, the person who's humble and wise will be like, I'm going to adjust my life based off that because I think it was wise. Some of you might need the fear approach from God. Some of y'all might need the confrontational approach. Some of you might need the teaching approach. It's just, it's just tell me what the truth is and I'll follow. Some of you might need this approach. It's the invitation approach. The invitation approach is illustrated by this. Jesus knocking on the door of our lives, saying, I'm just going to knock. I won't kick in your door. I'm just going to knock on the door of your life. And I hope you open it up to me so that we can have a relationship. And this is where I get this. Number five, the Christ-reliant church opens the door to depending on Jesus daily. This is a super famous verse. Maybe you've heard this before. It says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's verse 20. There's this uh, famous painting by William Holman Hunt called The Light of the World, where he illustrates this. Um, Have you ever seen this before? This is verse 20. Jesus stands at the door. Let me just point out some features to this picture. There's actually fruit on the ground that is rotting. It's the symbol of a wasted life. It's the symbol of wasted opportunity. It's interesting because there's actually no doorknob on the, on the door there. If you look closely and you really examine it, there's no doorknob, meaning this. Jesus is not going to like open it up and walk right in and be like, I'm in your life whether you like it or not. It's not how he operates. Which is interesting because the, the church in Laodicea, they were under Roman control. One of the things that the Roman government could do, any government official or soldier could come in, break into their home and be like, you need to show me hospitality. And they had to, it was the law. I don't know if it's hospitality if they force themselves in, <laughs> but whatever. And Jesus is like, I don't operate that way. I stand at the door and I knock. Now, have you ever heard this verse taught before? And the pastor uses it as the, listen, some of you are not Christians today. And Jesus stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. And maybe you will let him in and you'll become a Christian today. The, per, the, the thought is good on that. The reality, though, is this is written to a church who thinks that Jesus is on the inside with them. Like, no, 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 Jesus is with me. We're good, right? Like, we do daily life together. And John is saying, Jesus, at this church in Laodicea, he's on the outside of the church, and he is knocking like, will you let me in? Stop living a self-reliant life and start living a Christ-reliant life. If you do that, I will come in and be with you. Isn't this weird? This is a different, this is the actual interpretation of this. This is written to Christians because Christians can live a self-reliant life at times. Quick question. What habits in your life can you miss for days and not realize it? Brushing your teeth? I mean, think about it for a second. Some of you can't go a meal without like, I just had a meal. I just had a Snickers bar and I got to go brush my teeth. It's just your habit. Good for you. Your dentist loves you. New underwear? I'm just saying, think about it for a minute. How long you, don't tell your neighbor how long you can go with the same underwear, okay? But just, I'm just saying, your habits. How long can you go without checking your social media feed? This message is going kind of long, pastor. Come on, hurry up. I'm just playing. 
How long can you go until you miss that habit? What about the habit of talking to God? Hours, days, weeks, months, years? What about the habit of hearing from God in his word? Hours, days, weeks, months, years. Our habits reveal our dependence and our reliance. I think this, um, this picture is an illustration of maybe what Jesus wants to do with some of us who are believers, who maybe there's a part of our life we've been leaving him on the outside of. And he wants in because that's the truly rich life. Last thing on this. It's the major theme in Revelation. The Christ-reliant church, super simple. It wins. This is how this ends. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Victory is the biggest theme in Revelation. Victory is guaranteed to the church and to the believers who are christ Reliant, who walk with Christ, receive his forgiveness. Our problem is this. Our accomplishments may be the very thing that keep us from depending on Jesus. So let me just say it this way. The Christ-reliant church is going to walk hand-in-hand with Jesus every single day in a truly rich life. Are you? Are we? Walking hand-in-hand with Jesus, depending on him for his goodness and his grace. Um, We remember this gift of relationship with Jesus when we take communion. It's, um, it's bread and it's juice. But it symbolizes, the bread symbolizes the body of Jesus and the juice symbolizes his blood that was shed on the cross for us. And so we practice this at our church. This has been going on for more than 2,000 years since Jesus died on the cross. Because he said, if you're going to remember me, do it this way. Have bread, have juice or wine. And I want you to eat and drink in remembrance of me. And so we're going to do that today. Uh, You don't have to be a member of our church. You could be brand new, first time with us, but you have to be a follower of Jesus to do this. And maybe if you're not, maybe today's the day that you're going to become a follower of Jesus to say yes to forgiveness and relationship with Christ. Because the bread reminds us that he suffered and died on a cross and his blood was shed on a cross so that we could know this forgiveness. And we don't take that lightly because of what it costs him. And so here's how I'd like us to wrap up this series today. I can only teach you from the scriptures what it is that Jesus said. And I spent a lot of time doing it. Thank you for your patience. But if you just learned something, you missed it. You have to decide how you're going to put some footwear to this. And how you're going to respond to it. If you're self-reliant today, you're doing it on your own. Jesus is not involved with you in your life. It says repent. In humility, repent. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry for that. But then it's about developing the habits of walking with him daily. If you need help with that, come see me. I will introduce you to some people in this room. One or two people who will help you learn those daily habits. You know why? Because there's joy in it. It's not duty. It's joy in it. So would God help us walk in the newness of life? So would you stand with me together? The band in a little bit is going to lead us in worship, but if you'd like to now, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, feel free to go grab the bread and the juice and just go pick those up in the back and uh, spend some time with God talk to him and enjoy this moment together.